Hi, I'm Tim Penketh, founder and CEO of thefutureeconomy.ca. Welcome to our podcast. Join me in conversation with the Canadian business leaders, policymakers, entrepreneurs, academics, and more who are shaping Canada's future economy. We'll explore their vision for Canada's future and what we need to do now to get there. Today, I'm joined by Bob McDonald. He's the host of weekly CBC radio show, Quirks and Quirks. His new book, The Future is Now, Solving the Climate Crisis with Today's Technologies, posits that we already have everything we need to overcome climate change. The only thing we lack is just the will to go ahead. I talked to Bob about the technologies he thinks will make the biggest impact in our fight against climate change and what Canada must do to accelerate the adoption of these technologies. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. I'm the host of Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio and the author of The Future is Now, Solving the Climate Crisis with Current Technology. Well, Bob, thanks so much for, for joining me and taking the time to speak uh, with, with me and the futureeconomy.ca audience today. Um, I want to speak about your book, the book you just mentioned. Uh, as you said, it's called The Future is Now, Solving the Climate Crisis with Current Technology. Uh, and in it, you talk about how the technologies that are necessary for us to produce energy uh, without carbon emissions and to green our societies already exist. Uh, so I want to dive into that and ask you, first of all, what are these technologies that you're most optimistic about? And what are the, the sort of the economic or societal opportunities that their mass adoption and implementation uh, represents, uh, both globally, but also for, for us as Canadians specifically? Well, Tim, that was one of the great joys when I started researching this book is that there are no new inventions needed to go green. Uh, first of all, there's no shortage of energy either. There, there's more energy falling out of the sky every hour than we use in a year. We just need to gather that up. And going back to the 1970s when we had the first oil embargo that happened, and I was around then, I remember that, the OPEC countries in the Middle East just turned off the tap to North America and we ran out of gas and uh, it was unheard of. What do you mean we're out of gas? And there was a lot of research that went into alternatives, wind, solar, geothermal, tidal energy, energy storage, all of these things. So I just thought, well, what happened to all of those? The, the research was going on and then it kind of died off because, well, we got that tap turned back on again. And uh, so it's, it's still there. And not only that, when I interviewed scientists for the book, I found that they were excited because it's getting better. There are improvements in, in all of these. And so what I did with the book is just put it all together and say, here it is. This is an update on green technology. This is, it's there. All we have to do now is put it to work. So that's the next challenge. That's a big challenge, I think. Um, how do we get to put that to work? So what do you see then as sort of the forces or the trends or the challenges that are holding us back from accelerating the adoption and the implementation of those technologies in Canada. Right. There, there are a couple. I think one is fear. Uh, it's a soft barrier. There's fear. There's fear that, well, it's going to be too expensive. Uh, there's, there's fear on the public part that, uh, well, how do I know it really works? And is it going to cost me too much? There's fear from industry that some industries that, gee, this is going to put us out of business. Uh, there's fear from uh, politicians that we're going to lose votes. Uh, you know, we're going to be unpopular if we do that. Those fears can be overcome. And we saw an example of how you can get four elements to work together, science, 
technology, the government and the public. And we did that during COVID. Here we had an invisible threat to humanity. And the science identified it. The Chinese scientists identified it right away. And the first thing they did was they sequenced the genetic code of that coronavirus and they sent it out to the world. And there was a huge effort, an, an international effort to identify the virus, how it works and how it infects us and how to develop a, a vaccine. Industry stepped in. The pharmaceutical companies developed billions of doses to spread them around. Then the government stepped in and said, okay, we're going to support that. We're going to support the industry, the science, and we're going to say if we're going to, the science said, shut down. You know, everybody's got to stay still because it's airborne. And so we put out those mandates. They did that. <clears throat> they also supported people who lost their jobs, industries that were affected, and the public bought into it. We started wearing masks and doing all of those things. So the four elements, the four elements, the science, the industry, the government, and the public, we all got together and we flattened the curve of coronavirus. Well, now we need to flatten the curve of climate change. The science has been saying, look, it's there. It's, it's rising. We know that. My very first job at the CBC was in 1978, and I did a documentary on climate change in 1978. We've been talking about it forever, and I've been watching all of these predictions from the scientists come true, that the temperature is going to go up, sea levels are going to rise, we're going to lose ice in the Arctic, we're going to have loss of habitat, blah, 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 forest fires, droughts, all. it's all happened. It's all happened. And so the science is there. The technology is there. The engineers are saying, sure, we know how to capture the sun, the wind, and, and all of these other forms of energy. But governments have been slow. We've had gatherings, these United Nations gatherings, uh, starting with Rio in 1992, the first Earth Summit. And I was reporting on that, too. Since then, we've had 26 of these uh, now called COP meetings. And everybody, you know, they keep pushing the goalposts back. And the, the bottom line is the, uh, the global emissions are still on the rise. So the government's slow. They're doing things, but it's slow. And then the public is doubtful, partly because of campaigns to put doubt in the minds of, uh, of the public. And uh, the oil industry or the fossil fuel industry feels threatened. But that doesn't need to be the case. It, it, we can move forward if we do what we did with COVID and cooperate rather than polarize it and make enemies, you know, say, oh, bad, bad oil industry. Oh, good tree huggers. Don't do that. No, no, no. It's, let's find other ways to get energy out of oil. So I, I believe we can do it. Hopefully it just won't come to as much of an emergency as COVID was with people dying so much every, uh, every year. Well, let's dive into Canada specifically, specifically then. Where do you think we are as a country uh, in terms of our public acceptance? And you mentioned the public as one of, the, 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 one of those four points, and it, it has a lot of fear that is holding us back on this. How do we, where are we in terms of public acceptance and buy-in for these technologies? And how do we get beyond that? How do we increase that? How do we make that happen? Well, Canada is an oil-producing country. That's, that's it. We, we produce oil. We, we produce a lot of fossil fuels and we distribute them to the world and they provide a lot of jobs and they're a big chunk of our economy. Uh, so we have to accept that. That's, that's it. And there has been a lot of doubts, um, obviously in, in, in the prairies in Alberta and whatnot, <clears throat> excuse me, about moving away from those fossil fuels because they feel threatened by that. However, the public mind is changing, um, partly driven by climate change itself, which is now in our face. It's not something in the future anymore. And you look what just recently happened in the Maritimes with the, the hurricane that went through there, that also went through Florida. Uh, we've, I'm out here in the West where I live, We've been having 
forest fires. The fire season is so much longer now. And uh, the last three summers, is a, I'm, I'm a motorcyclist and I drive around the mountains here. And I think I've, in, I've inhaled an entire tree in smoke just from driving around. So it's in our face. It's in our face. We're really, really seeing it. And I think there's a, a public perception about, yes, let's move on. And I'm even seeing a little bit of that in the oil industry itself because they're starting to look at other ways to get energy out of oil, and that's hydrogen. So if we can do that, not make an enemy out of the oil company, but say, think of yourself as an energy company and just give us a different product <laughs> so that it's, it's hydrogen for storage or for vehicles or, or whatever. So that transition can happen, but it's not going to be overnight. I, I think of the difference between an evolution and revolution. Revolution is when you have two sides that disagree with each other and there's conflict and people get hurt. And there's usually chaos. It's, it's not a good way to do things. Evolution is when you take what you have and you make it better. You just improve it. And, and look at this. Look, look at our phones. Look at what we've done. When I was a kid, the phone was on the wall and you had to stand there and all it did was talk. Now you look at what this thing does. Talking is probably the last thing we do on these. Alexander Graham Bell would roll over in his grave if he saw what a cell phone could do. And this did not come from a government mandate. This became, this came because it's a great product. A company came up with a better way of communicating and everybody adopted it. Okay. Well, let's do that. The, the green sector is one of the, the fastest growing sectors of the economy. It's a good investment. And if you adopt green technology, you put solar panels on your building or, or you put a heat pump or, or geothermal, whatever, you're saving money because fuel costs are going up. So it, it is economically viable to do that. We just need the incentive to do that and get over those, over those fears that I was talking about at the beginning. You, you mentioned incentives. Uh, I want to ask from a policy perspective uh, or from a, a leadership perspective, what do you think is needed on that front uh, in order to yeah, get us over this hump and push us forward? Well, you can do two things. Uh, one is to support the, uh, the new technology, support research. Uh, governments can afford to take chances on new technologies that uh, private industry can't. So the, invest, invest in the new ideas. Uh, for example, in solar, there are new materials called perovskites, which are these uh, very, very thin film materials. You can actually see through them, which seems odd. You, you want to capture sunlight, but you have something that sunlight can go through, but they're still photovoltaic and you can coat windows with them. And you think about all the windows that we have in our tall buildings in our cities. If you coat those with perovskite film, they become solar. They're talking about perovskite paints. All you have to do is paint your house and it'll get, it'll become solar. Well, that stuff is in development. We need, we need, we need work. We need research to support that. The government can also make, although they're unpopular, they can make mandates. And you look at what California's doing. California's talking about banning the sale of combustion engine cars in, in the future. They, they want to have all cars electric. So then you have an incentive there. You say, okay, we're going to mandate that this new technology that's really good is, is going to become popular and get rid of the, the old one. So it's, again, it's an evolution. We'll still have cars. There'll just be something different under the hood turning the wheels instead of this 150 year old inefficient combustion engine that pollutes the atmosphere to an electric motor that's either driven by a battery or maybe a hydrogen fuel cell. So we can do that. Again, evolve the technology like we evolved the phone. It, it can be done and, it, and it's going to be, it, it'll just creep in. You're probably noticing more electric cars on the road now. 
they're creeping into our way of being and all the manufacturers are making them. That's how it's going to happen. I just hope it happens fast enough because the science is telling us that the climate is changing faster than they predicted. So let's get on with it now. Let's get on with it now. Well, when we when you look at that speed, the speed of innovation and the speed of how this the science is developing these new products, these new technologies, how do you see Canada comparing um, globally, uh, maybe in terms of its ability to innovate in these different tech spaces? And um, if you look at this this array of technologies, and you've listed a few already, which do you think represents the most uh, potential in terms of uh, Canada's ability to innovate and to lead in uh, in certain technology or another. Canada has tremendous ability. We we have great intellectual capital in this country. Our universities are fabulous. Our centers of excellence. We we we've just got great brain power here, which often leaves you know we have we also have a brain drain problem, but we have the ability to develop technologies or to improve technologies that already exist, and. Where that's going to happen, it's different because our country is so large. So you get different technologies for different areas. Um, in the prairies, uh, you're going to get wind and solar because there's lots of it out there. Um, in the Maritimes, you're going to get tidal energy. They're, re they're working on it in the Bay of Fundy, the highest tides in the world. They're researching tidal energy there. Uh, same thing here on the West Coast where I live, where tides squeeze between islands and, and it speeds up and you get really strong currents out here. Uh, geothermal. That's more of a mountain thing because the magma has to come close to the surface up through extinct volcanoes. So that's the mountains of the West. Unfortunately, geothermal doesn't work as well for the eastern or central and eastern part of the country because we're covered in granite, the Canadian Shield, which is really hard and expensive to dig through. So it's different. It's, it depends where you are. And that's the future. Energy is going to come from a lot of different sources be, depending on where you live. Um, we're going to rethink nuclear. Canada has a great history of nuclear power. Uh, our reactors, the can-do reactors, have a, a really good safety record. Uh, but they're expensive. They're big and they're multi-billion dollar projects that take years to build and, and millions to maintain every year. Well, Canada's now investing in small modular nuclear reactors with a core that's only about the size of an office desk and you bury it underground and it'll power a small town. So in the north, we could have uh, small modular reactors running towns that are now being powered by diesel generators. So uh, with our vast geography, we're going to have different sources of energy everywhere, including your own house. You'll be producing power yourself as well. Well, you just listed a whole bunch of different technologies. Um, I, I want to turn the tables on you. Is there one that really excites you personally? Which one gets your heart pumping uh, in terms of its uh, potential impact? Well, they all do. I mean, you know, the big ones, the uh, wind technology has changed because uh, of the ability to build really large wind turbines and in both wind and solar size matters because the energy is spread out over large areas. And the largest windmill in the world now, at the time of writing my book, was called the Halyard X, General, General Electric. They have one in uh, Denmark. And it is two and a half times taller than our peace tower on the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. It's it's taller than the Saturn V moon rocket, 260 meters. And this thing can power 16,000 homes. One, one turbine can do that. Um, the These things are so large, uh, a single turn of the blade can power a house for two days. 
That's that's astounding. They're so big now, so that you don't need huge fields of turbines. People say, oh, they're really ugly. And they're going to put them offshore. Europe is doing this. You you put them out on the ocean where the winds are strong and consistent. And we can do that as well. So people who think turbines are ugly, well, put them offshore. The United States is going to be doing that in the Atlantic. As far as I know, Canada doesn't have any plans to do that. We do. We still put them on land. Um, solar, the perovskites I just mentioned, I find that really exciting. There's also really interesting things happening with energy storage because one of the big criticisms of alternatives is that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, which is true. So you have to store energy for when those technologies are not functioning. Hydrogen is one way to do that. Um, and we have a company in Saskatchewan that has found a way to get hydrogen out of oil while the oil is still in the ground. While the oil is still in the ground, they can just get the hydrogen up. And uh, so that's kind of cool. They can do that. There are different ways of storing energy besides batteries. Um, there's one called gravitricity. They use gravity. They just haul up these giant blocks of concrete and they make a huge, huge tower when there's energy available. And then when you need energy, they pick up these blocks with big cranes and they just let them fall slowly to the ground. And as they're coming down at the top of the crane on the cable, there's a pulley and it spins around and it runs a generator. So you're using gravity to store energy. And you got five of these cranes. So one of them's, one of them's always working. There's a company in Ontario that's storing energy with compressed air. They have an abandoned mine that they just pump air into and get it up to really high pressure. It's a large volume, really high pressure, and then just hold it like a balloon that's been blown up. And then when you need the energy back, you let the air come shooting out through a small orifice. And again, there's a turbine that spins a generator. Air, you're storing it in air. Uh, there's a group in Norway that's got sand. They're, they're storing energy in sand. It turns out that that sand can be heated up to a thousand degrees and it won't melt. And uh, so they just have these big vats or big pits of sand and they heat it up really, really high and they're heating homes over the winter. They've got seasonal heat from hot sand uh, in, in Norway. That, that's astounding. So there are so many different approaches to this. We, we've been spoiled with fossil fuels because they're so convenient. They're so energy dense and they're so versatile that you can use them when you want. You can use them for transportation or heating or everything. We've been spoiled by these, these few things that do so much. And in the future, we're going to have a lot of different things. So it's a different way of thinking about energy. It's distributed energy rather than, you know, a few sources. And from an economic point of view, that's jobs, right? That's, that's a lot of jobs there to install that stuff, to maintain that stuff, to serve it to, to whatever. So uh, it's, it's there, you know, it's just there. And it's been a little frustrating for me to know that all that stuff's out there, but we're just not using it. I, I think of it like being on the Titanic. You know, we've hit the iceberg, the ship's going down. There are lots of ice of lifeboats and they say, okay, get in the lifeboats. And then people start saying, I don't know, are those things recyclable? Where do the materials come to build those boats? What what happens after they're used? I don't like the color. I'm staying on the ship, you know. <laughs> and so the, the the arguments against the the alternatives that I hear just don't add up. They just don't add up. When you think about what we've been doing so far to the planet, you know, it's, uh, yeah, get on with it. All right, <laughs> let's just get on with it. When when you were listing all those technologies, I felt you could. First of all, I felt the sort of childlike passion bubbling up in you, especially when you're describing the crane. I imagine children uh, playing with Lego because that's what it sounds like. These are really yeah. fascinating, simple ideas, and as you said, they're right there. They're there for the taking. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. It's a shame that they're there. Um, 
you did touch on the topic of of oil and gas right at the end of that answer there. Mm -hmm. And I want to and even though you mentioned it already, I want to touch on that again, because it is so important to Canada's economy. Uh, and as you said earlier in the conversation, there are certain industries, and I think oil and gas is is one of them that you would include in the list that are um, not accelerating the, the, the confirmation the, the conversation mm -hmm. or the implementation of these technologies. So in the book, you, you address the topic of oil and you say that we have to rethink the way we use it. So I want to know what role you think the oil and gas sector has to play in the sort of clean tech and energy transition conversation mm -hmm. uh, and also where you see them fitting in at all, if at all, in uh, Canada's future economy. Well, they're going to fit in in a very large role. I'm, I'm, and I make it clear in the book, and I've been saying it publicly, I'm not out to make an enemy out of the oil companies. I, I, I don't. We, that's, that's dangerous when you do that. That just makes people angry and everything stops. Nothing happens. Both sides dig in their heels, right? So uh, the oil companies, it would be in their best interest to invest in clean energy so that they're providing us energy. And uh, uh, one interesting example is Iceland. It's a volcanic island, the whole, the whole island. And they have a huge geothermal resource there. So they generate their electricity, some of it with geothermal energy, which is clean and reliable and cheap. And they wanted to go to a hydrogen economy using the electricity to break down water, which is hydrogen and oxygen, into hydrogen and oxygen, and then go to a hydrogen economy because they don't have any oil of their own. They have to import it all, which is very expensive. So they were, they were planning to uh, do all of this. They're still working on it a little bit. Who was helping them with the distribution of the hydrogen? Because it has to go to a service station and so people can fill up their fuel cell cars. Dutch Shell. Shell Oil was helping a country get off oil. And the philosophy, this was back in the 90s, was that we don't care what cars fill up with when they go to a station, as long as it says Shell. <laughs> so that's very smart. And that's, that's the idea, is make them energy companies. Now, when we burn oil now, and I'm not saying oil should go away, the problem is all we've been doing with fossil fuels since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is digging them out of the ground and lighting a match. That's it. You think about coal. It's a rock that burns. We don't do anything to coal. Maybe we grind it into smaller particles. You just light a match and it burns. How convenient. The problem is that we call them hydrocarbons because they're long chains of carbon atoms with hydrogen stuck to them, like lights on a Christmas string. When you plug the Christmas string in, it's the lights that come on, not the, the string. So when we burn a fossil fuel, it's the hydrogen that's coming off and giving you that energy, and those carbon atoms are left behind. They then combine with something else, like oxygen. So you get carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas. If there's sulfur there, you get sulfur dioxide, which can form acid rain. So it's those leftover carbons that we haven't been dealing with. So either leave the carbon in the ground or just, and, or just leave it behind, store it, take it out when you get the hydrogen off and, and store it. Or, and this is a challenge that I would like to send out to any young engineers that are watching this program. Is there another way to get energy out of oil? besides just taking the hydrogen out of it, we already know how to do that. Most hydrogen today comes from natural gas. We can also get it from oil and, and coal. It's harder and dirtier, but we, we already know how to do that. But the oil contains tremendous amounts of energy. So how else can we extract the energy from oil and not have those leftover byproducts? There's a challenge. Let's do that. So we're not going to throw oil away. We're not. It's too 
It's too dense. Uh, I, I, I give an example in the book of how dense the energy in oil is that um, somebody calculated how much energy it took purely from a mathematical point of view to build the pyramids. And when you convert that into oil, it comes down to 400 barrels. You could build the pyramids with 400 barrels of oil, which one oil well can drill, can drill in one day. So it's, it's unbelievable how much energy is in oil. We've been spoiled with that. We've been wasting it. We've been throwing it away. Let's think about, rethink oil. So that, that's my job I, I, that, that I think the oil companies can do, is really rethink how else we can get energy out of the oil. I once, uh, I once interviewed an, an engineer, a, a chemist at an oil company, and, and one of the things that he said that really stayed with me, he said, future generations are really going to judge us uh, for the fact that we burned oil because that is the most wasteful thing that you can do with it. It becomes plastic. It becomes chemicals. It becomes so many things that, frankly, Absolutely. we don't even, we take for granted. Uh, and he said, burning this is the, the worst and, and least economic thing you can do. Absolutely. And, and the internal combustion engine is very inefficient. Even if you drive a small car with a small engine, you think, oh, it gets great mileage. It doesn't because a, an internal combustion engine is only about 20% efficient, which, you know, the thermodynamicists say, well, that from a heat point of view, that's great, but it's not. 20%. That means of all the energy that's in the gasoline, only 20% of it is moving the car. 80% is lost from waste heat. You have to keep heat taking heat away from a gas engine or it won't run. So it goes out the tailpipe and it goes out the radiator at the front. 80% of the energy is being thrown away. So when you fill up your car, you think about it, you go to a gas station, you take the pump, you put it into your car. Suppose it costs, well, I don't know. Okay, let's take, let's say you're putting $50 worth of gas in your car. Uh, only 20% of that. So that's uh, $10. You, you put $10 in your tank, but then stop. Take the nozzle out of your car and point it into the air and pour $40 worth of gas into the air. You'd be arrested for that. People say, oh, you're polluting. Oh, you're, you're wasting gas. But that's exactly what we do. We just turn it into heat and we throw it away. So, And that's, again, because gas is so dense with energy, we can afford to throw 80% of it away. Well, that's stupid. That's just nuts. So let's just stop doing that. An electric motor is 80% efficient. It's the other way around. And there's only one moving part and it spins. <clears throat> so, yeah, you're right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Burning it is the, the least thing we can do. But we hopefully there are other ways to get that energy out. Well, I love the fact that you threw out that challenge to, to young engineers out there listening. Um, I want to go, I want to continue in that vein and ask you what your very quick, very uh, punchy calls to action would be uh, to, to the following stakeholder groups in terms of accelerating the innovation and adoption uh, of the clean technologies that you, you listed throughout this interview. Um, firstly, it would be our governments. What do Canadian governments need to do now? Uh, to, to make this happen quicker? Well, the Canadian government can live up to its mandates to reduce carbon emissions. They can support uh, new research and uh, new technologies, not just in our universities, but uh, give tax breaks or <clears throat> incentives to industries that are trying to develop these, make it easy for the public to invest in this. If they're thinking about putting solar panels or whatever on the roof, uh, there are grants available. Keep that there. <clears throat> and to tax carbon, 
tax carbon. Uh, we already do tax carbon, but uh, keep that up and invest that carbon tax directly back into the clean technology, not just into the central pot. And perhaps, although they'll reach, they'll have opposition, um, <clears throat> put up some mandates that, like California, make the combustion engine obsolete in vehicles at a certain point. Pick a, pick a date, 2050 or whatever, and, and move forward on that. I, that would be a start. <laughs> that would be a start. Excellent. That, that's plenty already. Um, businesses, industry, what do, what do they have to do? And I know I'm not being specific here, but I'm allowing you to address it to whoever you, you think should hear it. Yeah, well, I'm not an economist or a business person. I'm a science guy. But I would say, look at it. Look at this. Look at it from an investment point of view. Look at all the different uh, innovations that are coming up. There are a lot of startup companies that are coming up with better electric motors. There's a huge need for better batteries. And there's an, a lot of research going into that right now with the, the automotive companies are looking at lightweight, <clears throat> efficient batteries that equal a tank of gas that you can fill really quickly. There are some challenges there. Um, if you want a battery that holds a huge amount of energy, it takes a long time to get that energy in. Uh, you, you want it to come out slowly, but it goes in slowly. Uh, there are technologies that can charge quickly, but they discharge quickly. <laughs> so you get a lightning bolt. You don't want that. So there are engineering challenges to here to make good batteries. And, and so look at that as an investment and, and make it, uh, you know, cultivate the industry, just like we cultivate other good ideas and make it happen. Then uh, last one that I want to ask you about is the Canadian public. Uh, what do you, myself, our neighbors, what do we all have to do? Well, again, do research and um, find out whether or not solar panels would work for you. They might not. You know, you need a certain size of roof. You need to live in a certain area. Maybe it's too windy or, or excuse me, too cloudy where you are. But at least do the research. Find out what it really costs because the cost of the alternatives are coming down, especially solar. In some parts of the world, solar is cheaper than coal right now. So just do the research. Find out not only what the upfront costs are, but what the long-term savings are when you get that back. That's the beauty of the alternatives. Once you pay for it, it just sits there and gathers free energy from the sun. You don't have to keep drilling it out of the ground like we do with, with fossil fuels. So just do the research, get educated, and if you can... Uh, go for it. And then vote smart. Vote for, you know, local politicians who support going green. Make your town a model. We're going to have the greenest town in the country and, and make that an incentive to see what you can do on all fronts. Uh, invest in a heat pump or, or whatever. Or, uh, there, there's so many things we can do, but think positively. And I want to leave you with, uh, with a scary statistic that I found out when doing the book. Um, during the two years of COVID, roughly five and a half million people lost their lives. And that's a terrible tragedy. But we beat COVID. We're still fighting it with that four elements that I talked about, the science, the technology, the government and the public. We all got together. But five and a half million people died. According to three separate studies on three continents, every year between seven and eight million people die from fossil fuel burning, mostly from air pollution and the effects of climate change. Seven to eight million people a year. That's twice as many as died from COVID. And we just let that go. So it's not just a climate issue. It's a human health issue. It's a survival issue. We've got to face this fact, not get scared by it, not become fatalistic about it, not give up, not become fearful, but move ahead. The technology's there. Let's engineer our way through this climate crisis that we're in right now. We're smart. 
We went to the moon, for God's sakes. We're really innovative. So let's just get on with it now. I believe we can do that. And I'm actually optimistic. I believe in human ingenuity. Awesome. Well, I'm sure that optimism will spread through uh, through this interview and through the book. Um, just before we close out, um, one request that we get from our audience is, obviously, they hear a lot of interesting things from thought leaders such as yourselves, such as yourself, excuse me, but they want to know a bit more about you as a person. So if you don't mind, I have some rapid fire questions uh, for the audience to get you uh, to get to know you better, who the real Bob McDonald is. So first question is, uh, obviously, you've interviewed a lot of people, but is there a Canadian thinker or public figure or leader that you haven't had the chance to interview or speak with and would really love to? Oh, wow. Um, boy, that's a hard question because I think I've interviewed all the significant Canadians. That's what I do for my job. I've done more than 7,000 interviews in the last 30 years of hosting Quirks and Quarks. So um, I haven't interviewed the prime minister yet. So uh, that, that would be fun. Okay, we'll put that one on the list. Uh, next, and I know you just authored a book yourself, but a book you think everyone should read. Besides mine? And extra points if it's about Canada uh, or it takes uh, place in Canada. <laughs> uh, there's a, a very interesting book called Hope Matters. And uh, it's, it's by Ellen um, Balser, I think. Hope Matters. And it's about attitudes towards moving ahead, getting over the fear. And she points out... Um, success stories where species, some species are coming back. Some species are adapting to climate change. Uh, that's one book. And another one is called The Mother Tree. And it's about how trees communicate with each other in the forest. There's an underground biological internet that trees actually communicate with each other. And it it addresses the issue of how we're managing our forests and how we need the forest. We need to rewild the earth. It's called The Mother Tree. I highly recommend it. And we saw that happening over COVID with all the lockdowns and the Venice canals being crystal clear. And so, yeah. Skies that, went that blue. Skies sure. went blue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, three more questions. Very quick one. A show, a series or a podcast or a movie that you're really enjoying right now. Oh, <laughs> I just saw a, a series called The Chair with Sandra Oh. It's, it's very good. It's about um, old style institutions it takes place in a university and she becomes the chair but she's up against the old boys club and uh it's it's a very interesting look at academic life and how it's how it's evolving to fit the new the new mold of how kids learn excellent very pertinent for sure a piece of advice you'd give your younger self oh boy um <laughs> a piece of advice uh, give my younger self um keep going uh well my younger self was uh living in a low-income family uh a broken family i guess i would tell my younger self that there is hope there is hope hope matters hope matters yeah okay last one and and this one's a special to me. I'm an interviewer myself as well. So you're a host, you're an interviewer, as you said, 7,000 and, and, and you're keeping on ticking. What is a question that you wish people would ask you more often and why? Well, the, the, the question that I like to answer is, uh, you know, why am I so interested in science? What is it about science that captures my imagination or, uh, and, 
I, I see science as a, a way of looking at the world. It's, it's a very, very detailed way of looking at the world. You put on these scientific glasses and you see the same world that everybody else does, but you see it in such amazing detail. You can see through time, you can see through distance, you can look back to animals that trudged around here before we even existed. You can look out to the edge of the universe, you can look down into an atom. It's just incredible. And uh, there's so much of it we don't know. And uh, I find that fascinating. So that's the question I like to answer <laughs> if people want to ask me. <laughs> As a Canadian who grew up listening to you dissecting all that science and all the power and potential it represents, thank you. Thank you for being so passionate about it and sharing, sharing that passion with us. It's been my pleasure, Tim. Thanks for having me. Bob McDonald's uh, book is The Future Is Now. Go check it out. And Bob, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been great, Tim. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on the FutureEconomy.ca's podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss upcoming crucial conversations about our economic future. And please consider leaving a rating or review. Also, make sure to visit our website, thefutureeconomy.ca, for more in-depth content from the leaders shaping Canada's future economy. And sign up for our newsletter to be notified of new releases as soon as they're out. Finally, if you value what we do, Tell a friend or two about us. We'd really appreciate the support. See you next time.